Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. Alright, on with the show. Before I get to the episode, I want to mention that in March, I'm hitting three years since I started podcasting full-time. And I want to do a Q&A episode, so I'll answer questions about Canadian history, about myself. Just email craig at canadaehx.com. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On November 27, 1885, Eight men sat in a freezing guardroom at Battleford, Northwest Territories. Through their lives, these incarcerated men had seen the world change around them. They were born into traditional lives on ancestral land occupied for millennia. But things began to change as European settlers arrived. Slowly, they lost their land while watching loved ones die of starvation and disease. A new government was imposed on them, and when they asked for help, their pleas usually fell on deaf ears. Eventually, they took up arms, which led to the deaths of several settlers. This was a crime that could not be ignored. Retribution was swift and harsh. Now, the eight men found themselves convicted of murder. They awaited the final moments in the cold, windy Canadian prairie that had once been their homeland. When the time came, they followed a squad of mounted police wearing black military cloaks over their shoulders as they marched up the platform. They lined the eight men in front of a noose above a trap door, and before the black caps went over their heads, they looked out into the crowd. Authorities had limited attendance, but there were enough angry and familiar faces in the crowd. The anger came from those who saw them as savages bent on killing anyone who crossed their path. The familiar faces were indigenous, like them, on the scaffold. They too lost everything and now looked on in sympathy. Then, their world went black as the hoods went on, and the final sound they heard was the sharp grating sound of the iron lever as it was pulled. The men fell through the trap door to their death in what was Canada's largest mass hanging. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. In this episode, I'm going to be glossing over much of the Northwest Resistance. The story of that resistance is a deep and complicated one, but I will be covering it on my June 13th episode. But until then, I won't be going much beyond the relevant facts. For the first part of the 19th century, the indigenous people of Western Canada lived, for the most part, untouched by European settlers except for fur traders from the Hudson's Bay Company and Northwest Company. And as fur traders traveled the land, they brought with them diseases like smallpox. But for the most part, the indigenous people lived as they always had. They moved with the ease of changing seasons following great herds of bison and defended their land from enemies. 
By the midpoint of the 19th century, things began to change. The bison were disappearing, and more white settlers were arriving in the Canadian prairies. Various fur trade posts and police forts appeared, and along with that, more people from the east. Almost as soon as Canadian Confederation happened in 1867, the new Canadian government looked to settle the west. Then came the transfer of the vast area of Rupert's Land in 1869, and the admittance of British Columbia into Confederation in 1871, which came with the promise of a railroad across the country. This marked the beginning of the end for the Indigenous way of life, because by now the bison were gone, and the Indigenous people were starving. And the government saw an opportunity. From 1871 to 1877, in exchange for small parcels of land, rations and supplies, the indigenous people of what would become Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba signed a series of treaties. These numbered treaties ceded all the central and southern portions of that territory to the government which they would settle. For those who had lived freely on the prairies, they were now under the control of a foreign power. And it was not an easy pill to swallow, because indigenous people were at the mercy of the government, and more specifically, the Indian agents who managed their lives and oftentimes, that meant leaving ancestral lands to live on reserves. As Chief Administrator of the Indian Act, the Indian agent held a huge amount of sway over the indigenous people. They dictated rations received, how and when grievances were heard by the government, and, after 1885, whether or not indigenous people could even leave the reserve. After Chief Big Bear, a Cree leader, settled at Frog Lake after signing Treaty 6 in 1882, he found he was unhappy with the unfair terms he was forced to sign. He had only signed to get rations for his starving people. And this is where Indian agent Thomas Quinn enters the story and sets in motion tragic events that led to several avoidable deaths. Big Bear had signed the treaty and ceded land to the government, but Indian agent Quinn was withholding rations. Among Indian agents, Quinn was notoriously harsh. Indigenous people assigned to him were often on the brink of starvation. In his mind, if they didn't work, they didn't get rations. One of the worst days came on the 1st of April prior to 1885. On that day, he promised full rations if the Cree showed up to the ration house. A line of men and women and children formed early as they showed up to get food. Quinn then opened the door and yelled, April Fools, and closed it. Those waiting for food walked away without. Quinn's vicious attitude was witnessed by William Cameron, who wrote about what happened on October 19, 1884, between Quinn and Little Poplar in his 1926 book, Blood Red the Sun, which I used extensively for this episode. Cameron wrote that the Cree arrived at the Hudson's Bay Company post at Fort Pitt to meet with Quinn in order to receive their treaty payment. In the party were people such as Big Bear, Wandering Spirit, Little Poplar, and Miserable Man. At this exchange, the Cree were supposed to receive beef along with money. Little Poplar told Quinn that he was the man the government sent to say no to everything they asked for. He added that people were starving, needed fresh meat, and they wanted to kill an ox for food. Quinn responded, the government gives cattle to the Indians for work and milk, and not to kill. There is no beef for you. Little Poplar said he had seen the railroad and knew it brought food. He asked why he could not bring food for his people. Quinn simply said, you heard what I said. In the afternoon, Big Bear, who was with Little Poplar that day, spoke with Captain Francis Dickens, the son of Charles Dickens and an officer with the Northwest Mounted Police. He told Dickens that his people liked him, that he had a good heart, 
that Quinn had a heart made of stone. He then pointed to Quinn and said, When the governor made the treaty with us, we were told we should have beef to eat at every payment. Then, miserable man, the Cree war chief under Big Bear, walked up to Quinn and said, When I am hungry this winter and I ask for food, if you don't give it to me, Quinn simply smiled. Later that day, Agnes McKay, the Hudson's Bay Company officer in charge of Fort Pitt, had a steer slaughtered for the Cree to eat. And while the Cree appreciated the gesture, they were angry that the meat did not come from the government as promised in the treaty, they were forced to sign two years earlier. That winter was not an easy one for the Cree at Frog Lake. Quinn continued his harsh treatment and withheld full rations, and the people were starving, and that fueled their anger. Meanwhile, Events in the Northwest Territories were setting in motion a watershed moment in Canadian history, the Northwest Resistance. On March 19, 1885, Louis Riel established the new provisional government of Saskatchewan, and the Canadian government was not a fan of Riel. Louis Riel was a Canadian politician, a founder of the province of Manitoba, and a political leader of the Métis people. He had led the Red River Resistance of 1869-1870 against the Government of Canada and its first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald. Riel sought to defend Métis rights and identity as the Northwest Territories came progressively under the Canadian sphere of influence. The Canadian government was not going to allow a provisional government to be set up in their territory, though. At Fort Carleton, located in west-central present-day Saskatchewan, Commander Leif Crozer ordered 19 of his men to go to the General Goods Store at nearby Duck Lake to get supplies. On March 26, the soldiers encountered Métis leader Gabriel Dumont, who had been waiting on the road with 200 men. Crozer chose not to engage the larger force and instead went back to Fort Carleton to get his reinforcements. There, he rallied together 53 officers and men from the Northwest Mounted Police, 41 men from the Prince Albert Volunteers, and a 7-pounder cannon. The Métis and Canadians met at Duck Lake later that day. In the battle, the Métis easily defeated the smaller militia, leaving the Canadians with 12 dead and 12 wounded. The Métis suffered only 5 dead and 3 wounded. Losing the battle came as a huge shock to the Canadian government, who quickly began to put together a force to travel to the area. The Northwest Resistance had begun. And there is much more to tell about this huge event in Canadian history, but at this point, we're going to leave that story. Tensions were high across the Northwest Territories on April 1st, 1885, but at Frog Lake, things seemed to be relaxed. According to William Cameron, on that day a prominent Cree named Wandering Spirit was happy to see him and even greeted him with a smile and a loud, Big Lie Day. That is what they called April 1st, the anniversary of when Quinn lied to them about rations. Any worry about the local Cree joining the Northwest Resistance were also put to bed by Amasis. He was Big Bear's son, and he told Quinn and William Cameron that they had been asked by the Métis to join the fight, but they refused. He said, We do not wish to join the half-breeds, but we are afraid. We wish to stay here and prove ourselves the friends of the white men. Tell us all the news that comes to you, and we will tell you all that we hear. Quinn responded, I am glad you wish to remain friends with us. The fighting is far from here. Stay on the reservation and no one will bother you. I will see that you do not want for food. Miserable man, who had threatened Quinn before winter, shook hands with him and left. Quinn, of course, had no intention of providing the food he promised, and the Cree knew it. That night, as William Cameron walked to Quinn's house, he tripped over a Cree man lying on the ground. He was watching the house to ensure Quinn didn't flee in the night. Cameron warned Quinn that something seemed to be afoot, and Quinn said that the Cree may kill him, but they could not scare him. 
Later that evening, as Big Bear slept in his lodge, Amasi's wandering spirit and other leaders held a secret council. Just after midnight on April 2nd, the Cree entered the homes of the settlers and seized all their weapons before they woke up. At 4 a.m., two Cree warriors slipped into Quinn's house and they went upstairs to his room. Quinn's Cree wife awoke to men in the room. She is unnamed in all the documents I found, but she was the niece of the influential Cree leader, Lone Man. Upon seeing the intruder, she sprang out of bed, waking Quinn. At this point, other Cree arrived, including Lone Man. Lone Man had previously told the men not to harm his niece, so Quinn was soon taken from the home. Wandering Spirit then came up to him, put his hand on his shoulder, and said, You are my prisoner. Throughout the morning, various white settlers were rounded up as the Cree took control of the community. The settlers were ushered into the local Catholic church where two priests were conducting mass with several other settlers. The Cree allowed the settlers to continue their mass. By this point, Big Bear was aware of what was happening and quickly went to the church hoping to prevent bloodshed. William Cameron wrote in Blood Red the Sun, I'm convinced Big Bear would have flung himself upon the first of his followers to point a gun and fought for our lives. As mass ended, the settlers were allowed to leave the church, but Wandering Spirit had some of them taken to the farm instructor's office. The settlers were then told to move to the Cree encampment, located a few kilometers away. Every settler agreed except one, Thomas Quinn. In his book, William Cameron states that he was in the shop and had given Miserable Man a shawl, some tobacco, and tea. Miserable Man was tying up the parcel when a shot rang out, followed by two more in quick succession. He wrote, At the first report, the eyes of Miserable Man opened wide. At the third, he snatched his bundle from the counter and dashed out of the shop. Cameron then ran to the hill and came upon Quinn's body. He identified Amasis as the man who initially shot Quinn, wounding him. Cameron then said Wandering Spirit came upon Quinn and ended his life quickly, with a gunshot to the chest. At this point, mayhem erupted. Cameron described the Cree as yelling a war chant as the settlers ran, while Big Bear ran out of the building yelling at the Cree to stop, as Quinn said, as well might he have shouted at the wind. Cameron walked away thinking that at that moment a bullet would hit him, and he felt that running would only invite a pursuit. He chose to walk to a nearby Wood Creek camp where he was protected by the chief and remained there for the next two months. Back at Frog Lake, death hung in the air. Wandering Spirit and his Cree had killed nine men in the community. This is now known as the Frog Lake Massacre. Those killed alongside Quinn were George Dill, William Cameron's business partner who had only come to Frog Lake the previous autumn, Charles Goyne, a Métis man who worked in the agency store, Reverend Leon Adelaide Fafard, who was originally from Quebec and was in town to serve the church. In the confusion, after Quinn was killed, Fafard was shot through the neck, and he had survived until he tried to get up, and another Cree warrior shot him in the head. Fafard was killed along with Félix Marie Marchand, another priest. The other men killed were John Delaney, John Gowanlock, John Williscraft, and William Gilchrist. The bodies of both priests were placed in the cellar beneath the church, and the earth walls were thrown over them. Quinn and Goyne were buried in the basement of a house, and soon after all the buildings were burned to the ground. The remaining settlers were taken hostage to a settlement outside the Cree camp. They were told they would be safe if they remained inside. If they were found outside, they would be considered an enemy. No other settlers were harmed. 
The night of the massacre, James Simpson, an officer of the Hudson's Bay Company, arrived at Frog Lake from Fort Pitt and asked Big Bear how he let it happen. Big Bear said, It is not my work. They have tried for a long time to take away my good name. And they have done it at last. If you had been here, this might never have happened. After the incident of Frog Lake, the Cree, numbering 200 in all, moved on to nearby Fort Pitt. On April 15, 1885, the Battle of Fort Pitt occurred. The militia at the fort, numbering only 22, were outnumbered 10 to 1. Constable Francis Dickens surrendered after one constable in a scouting party was killed. The fort was then destroyed. At this point, the Cree moved north with the supplies they had taken from the fort. The Canadian militia and Northwest Mounted Police pursued them. And eventually, the Cree and the Northwest Mounted Police met at Frenchman's Butte, located northwest of Fort Pitt. On May 28, 1885, 200 of Wandering Spirits warriors fought against 400 men from the Alberta Field Force. The Cree were able to repel the force as Wandering Spirit moved up and down the rifle pits, encouraging his warriors and building up their courage despite being outnumbered 2 to 1. After this battle, though, Wandering Spirit had changed. He became withdrawn and quiet. Some accounts say that Wandering Spirit had become so stressed over the massacre and the pursuit of the police that his hair turned white. Feeling like there was no hope for him, and looking to atone for his actions, he attempted to end his life by suicide. He said, I knew there was no hope for me. Perhaps I thought if I sacrificed myself, the government would not be so hard on the rest. He shot himself in the chest but survived and was taken to Battleford for medical treatment. He was now captured, and was now to stand trial along with ten other Cree men who had surrendered or been captured while he was recuperating, including Iron Body, Little Bear, Miserable Man, Bad Arrow, Round the Sky, Crooked Leg, Four Sky Thunder, and Man Without Blood. The trial began on September 22, 1885, and was presided over by Charles Rollo, the local magistrate. Rollo had served as the magistrate for the Northwest Territories Council since September 28, 1883, and during that time he had been a victim of the Northwest Resistance, when his home was burned to the ground. After he lost his home, he apparently stated that every Indigenous and Métis person brought before him would be sent to the gallows if possible. So, you can imagine how fair and balanced this trial would be. As it was common in 1885, the entire trial was held in English, which the accused for the most part could not speak. This prevented them from defending themselves against the charges. Nonetheless, Wandering Spirit pled guilty to the charge of murder. He said he admitted his guilt so he could clear his conscience and have assurances for his afterlife. And while he pleaded guilty, he said he only played a small role in the death of Thomas Quinn and the massacre itself. He stated he fought against it, but the Masseys and the others would not let Quinn go. Four Sky Thunder was accused of burning down the church. Round the Sky was accused of shooting Father Fafard. One witness account said that Round the Sky was provoked to shoot Fafard by his comrades, but this evidence was never presented in court. Miserable Man and Bad Arrow were accused of killing Charles Goyne. Both men pleaded not guilty. Miserable Man asked William Cameron, who was a witness at the trial, to be his alibi because he had been in the Hudson's Bay store when the massacre erupted. But Cameron hated Miserable Man and said nothing. It was only later in his book, written 37 years later in 1922, that he finally backed Miserable Man's alibi. Iron Body and Little Bear were accused of shooting George Dill, but the evidence was shaky at best. Iron Body was linked to the murder simply for his association with Little Bear, 
and neither man claimed responsibility for the murder. Alongside Iron Body, Little Bear, Miserable Man, Bad Arrow Around the Sky, and Wandering Spirit were two other Cree men. They were on trial for their actions at the looting of Battleford. This event began at the end of March 1885 during the Northwest Resistance in the town of Battleford, Northwest Territories, when Cree bands sympathetic to the Métis cause and with grievances of their own began raiding stores and farms. Crooked Leg was accused of murdering a farm instructor, while Man Without Blood stood trial for killing a rancher near Battleford. On September 22, 1885, after only one day of trial, 11 indigenous men were sentenced to hang. Afterwards, three men, I was unable to find two of their names, had their sentences reduced to prison time from the death penalty. One of the three, Forest Guy Thunder, was given 14 years imprisonment for burning the church down. Cameron described Wandering Spirit's demeanor during the sentencing as, he had maintained a stoic silence regarding the massacre and the motives which prompted him to commence it. A silence unbroken even when, after pleading guilty, he'd been given the opportunity to speak before sentence was pronounced. In his judgment, Rollo stated that Wandering Spirit was the greatest killer ever to walk on two legs in America. He said, quote, You were too weak to oppose the white man and could not have provided for yourselves even if you had killed them all, and now you would starve unless the government took you in charge. The trial was especially important for the Canadian government, led by Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald. From the government's perspective, the trial and the sentencing were a perfect opportunity to assert its authority over the Indigenous people of the West. And after the verdict, then Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald wrote, We must vindicate the position of the white man. We must teach the Indians what law is. During his imprisonment, Wandering Spirit told Cameron that he regretted his belief that the Cree could return to their old way of life. He stated he was not afraid to die, but he begged not to be buried with the ball and chain still shackled to him. Now, what comes next may sound familiar. On November 27, 1885, eight men, Wandering Spirit, Round the Sky, Bad Arrow, Miserable Man, Iron Body, Little Bear, Crooked Leg, and Man Without Blood, stood on the platform awaiting their death at the end of the noose. All but Wandering Spirit gave last words, which... According to William Cameron, who attended the hangings, were mostly shouting war cries or something in defiance of the white people who were putting them to death. Little Bear told the indigenous people in the crowd to remember how the whites had treated him and to make no peace with them. And according to legend, Wandering Spirit softly chanted a love song to his wife. Cameron described Wandering Spirit's last minutes on his side of the veil. He said that as a police constable approached Wandering Spirit, the war chief turned his head and watched him with the detached air of one it was an idle but no personal concern in an interesting proceeding. Then the black cap dropped over the face of the war chief himself, and the rope settled around his lean, sinewy neck. Cameron then described what came next, and a quick warning, it is a bit graphic. He said, There was a sharp sound of grating iron. The trap dropped and eight bodies shot through it. A sickening click of dislocating necks, and they hung dangling, gyrating slowly at the ends of his many hempen lines. A few convulsive shudders, and all was over. After the hanging, then Minister of Justice and future Prime Minister John Sparrow David Thompson looked at the cases and felt that the mitigating circumstances were not taken into account. He came to the conclusion that justice had been arbitrarily dispensed. But by then, the Battleford hangings had already gone down as the largest mass hanging in Canadian history and some accounts report that students from the nearby Battleford Residential School 
were brought to witness the hanging of the eight indigenous men. As for Big Bear, even though he opposed the attack and tried to keep peace, he was charged with treason. William Cameron, who testified against the Cree men during the trial, spoke in his defense. Regardless, Big Bear was sentenced to three years in Stony Mountain Penitentiary. He was released after two years in February 1887, and he died on January 17, 1888. As for William Cameron, he moved to Vermilion in what is now Alberta and served on the town council. He also founded the Vermilion Signal, a local newspaper, and was awarded the Northwest Canada Medal for his role as a scout and guide. On March 4, 1951, he died of double pneumonia at the age of 88. As for Charles Rollo, the man who sentenced eight Cree men to death, he was appointed to the Supreme Court of the Northwest Territories. He moved to the outskirts of what is now Calgary, where he founded the town of Rolloville. It was later annexed and is now the Mission neighborhood of Calgary. He died on August 25, 1901 in Rolloville. The community of Rollo, Saskatchewan was named for him, and if you're a fan of the comedy Corner Gas, you'll recognize that location. But you might be wondering what happened to the bodies of the hanged men after they were removed from the gallows. As it turned out, there was a mystery for almost a century. William Cameron wrote that on November 27, 1885, the eight Cree men that had just been hanged were put into wooden boxes and buried in a large common grave on the hillside below the police barracks. And as time went on, the gravesite was forgotten. Then, in 1972, a group of students took it upon themselves to find the grave. Using old plans of the fort, they rediscovered the grave and marked it with a concrete pad and a chain-link fence. Eventually, this was removed and replaced with a modern headstone that was inscribed with the names of each of the men put to death on November 27, 1885. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Blood Red the Sun, Literary Review of Canada, and Wikipedia. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, from John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.